welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. briefly reviewed in the last lecture the scripture's teaching on homosexual behavior. Um, one of the things that we're going to deal with in this lecture is, uh, although in a minor way, will be some finer distinctions about what homosexuality is and how we speak about it. Um, as we look at the peer-reviewed literature on, uh, on sexual orientation or what is called sexual orientation. Uh, this is an area in which I've, I've done a lot of, a lot of study. <clears throat> uh, in fact, the three leading sex researchers in the world all follow me on Twitter. I'm not sure. Sometimes I wonder why they, they do or still do. <laughs> but um, I, I've, I've done enough work on this, on some of this stuff that... Um, I have some connections with these researchers that, uh, interestingly, the three leading sex researchers in the world each are opposed to the affirmation-only treatment of gender dysphoria, which is, which is I mean, it's fascinating. They would disagree uh, much more strongly on, you know, my biblical convictions on, uh, on sexual orientation. But, uh, but anyways, it's this, what I'm going to be trying to do is give you an overview of the literature on sexual orientation with a view of demonstrating that when you look at the empirical world, when you look at what we see with our eyes, that if truth is truth, that if we see it correctly, that should align with the truth that we have here. Okay? Make sense? Should make sense. That if all truth is God's truth, 
If, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that means that the truths that we find revealed in Scripture should work their self, itself out in what we perceive and test and the scientific method. Now, there is a reason that divine revelation, special revelation, retains a primary place in our understanding of the world, in our epistemology. Okay, that's where things ought to start because we do not always see correctly in the world. And in fact, there are things, I'll be mentioning some of them today, there are things that we discover, for instance, that we've discovered in the last 20 years that would have seemed like science fiction just 40 years ago. Uh, and no doubt, if the Lord tarries, there will be new discoveries that will take place in 20 years' time that will seem like science fiction now. Uh, so there is a reason why we trust the word of God in a way that we do not trust the peer-reviewed literature. Nevertheless, uh, I think there are some advantages in knowing a few things about what the peer-reviewed literature says. Uh, first of all, it can sort of um, glorify God in that we see, wow, this is, you know, the truths in scripture has worked out in, in all these different areas. Uh, second of all, it, for, in, for some people's faith who may be weak, I mean, the scriptures should be enough, but it may bolster somebody's faith if they're, you know, they're wondering, they're feeling bombarded and assailed by the world and the culture and to, to go, okay, no, this is, you know, what the scriptures say. We see this in, for instance, the peer-reviewed literature as well. But then it also has an apologetic uh, per, um, benefit so that as you speak with those in the world, you're often... Uh, in university or just speaking with, with your neighbors that you have, uh, you can call on information and facts that, um, that may help convince them, even though, of course, it's always right simply to refer to the word of God and say, this is what scripture says. I'm not saying we, we don't do that, um, but it can be helpful to have arguments that are empirical as well. <clears throat> so, um, first of all, I want to comment on what sexual orientation is. Okay, what is sexual orientation? I mentioned in the beginning of my last lecture that I don't, I don't like that phrase. I, I tend to use it very sparingly. And uh, there are a couple of reasons why, but um, just looking at it from the perspective of the, of the literature, I'll, I'll say this, that the idea of sexual orientation is far too simplistic to what we find uh, is the experience of, of people in the studies. So, for instance, it is generally recognized in the peer-reviewed literature that sexual orientation has at least three components. Sometimes they say four, but um, the first is attraction. Okay, Who are you attracted to? Uh, so it is, of course, um, normative and not just from a biblical perspective, but even as far as just a general population that most of the general population statistically will be attracted to the opposite sex. But there are those who state that, no, I'm attracted to the same sex. And so that is, that is their attraction. Now, sometimes that's called sexual attraction. At times that's broken down Further, and this is why you sometimes will have a fourth category into romantic attraction. Yes, believe it or not, uh, you know, and how you 
study these things. There are some people that have tried to make a fine distinction between a sexual attraction and a romantic attraction, and they'll say that, oh, in some cases that could be different. Uh, okay. Um, the second aspect of what is called orientation is sexual identity. All right, so this is a self-identity. This is you saying uh, that I identify I, I as I categorize myself as gay or lesbian or bisexual. It's the, the category that you use for yourself. And of course, this connects with some of what we looked at a couple of um, lectures ago about sort of how identity, um, well, now it's called identity politics, but even before that, sort of this, this class categorization came into being, um, you know, with Marxism, uh, but, you know, all throughout, uh, you know, you got that with postmodernism and the gay movement as well. So this idea of identity. So first of all, attraction. Second of all, identity. And thirdly, behavior. All right, same-sex sexual behavior. Um, and what researchers began to discover, um, and it's worth noting that much of the time, though not always, it is LGBT people that are doing the research. That's, that's, that's important to note. Um, and so often LGBT researchers had, you know, the experiences that they, they had themselves. And so they started discovering these things. At times they were quite surprised to find that these three different aspects of sexual orientation do not neatly align. Um, they are, there are people that, um, you know, that may identify as, um, as heterosexual and yet have some same-sex attraction or people that have same-sex attraction and yet are married to, you know, to a woman and engage in heterosexual behavior. Uh, so, for instance, one of the leading researchers on, on many of these topics, by a woman by the name of Lisa Diamond, who is herself a, a lesbian, uh, she states this, this is a quote, it is commonly assumed that individuals with exclusive same-sex attractions pursue exclusive same-sex behavior and adopt lesbian or gay identities. Yet, in reality, discrepancies among attraction, behavior, and identity are widespread. Okay, so these things do not neatly align in the experience of what, are, you know, what is called sexual orientation. And it really undermines the idea of a comprehensive orientation. The word orientation really communicates that all of these are sort of wrapped up in one experience that explains your attraction, your identity, behavior. And that is not the case. Um, and so even from a secular peer-reviewed perspective, let alone a biblical one, the idea of sexual orientation or of using that language really is not... Uh, it's not in line with the truth that we see. Um, so one study that I'll refer to maybe a couple of times uh, in, this, in this lecture is a study that was done by uh, Rich Savin Williams and Jeffrey Ream in 2000 and, um, I believe it was 2000 and, oh, let me get this right here, 2007, I believe. 
And uh, in this lecture, or sorry, in this uh, study, they, they discovered this exact thing when they uh, took a look at young people, youths, and then tracked them into adulthood. And they found that, uh, that there was a lot of variability in the experience. I'll make some, I'll make some more comments about that in a minute. But, um, and, and he ends up saying something. Let's see if we can find the quote here. Uh, but he ends up saying something uh, about, this great quote about essentially how um, the experience, so I'm, this is my paraphrase, that, the, that our discoveries illustrate or are a problem for researchers who assume that orientation is a sort of a, a settled characteristic, um, is this one thing, and that it poses a problem because if you want to study sexual orientation now, well, what are you studying? How are you doing that? Because you, you have to be able to study then attraction and identity and behavior because the assumption that it's the same thing doesn't hold. Um, so for that reason, and I don't like using the word sexual orientation or that, I, that phrase. There's another one though. The other reason is that when you use the, the idea of sexual uh, orientation, what you are necessarily communicating is that this orientation is a sort of a lifelong settled or immutable characteristic. It's something that characterizes that person for life. And in fact, when it comes to uh, how the law in so much of the world now, certainly in North America, has dealt with uh, sexual orientation, it assumes this. It, sexual orientation, well, especially, uh, I should make some distinction here, especially in the United States. Canada's a little different, um, but in the, in the United States, the sorts of things that are protected by law are immutable characteristics. Things like race and gender. Um, although now, of course, since then, gender is seen to, to possibly change too now. But, um, but under law, those are the sorts of things that would be protected. Uh, and so there is a question that came, you know, when, when they were going to put sexual orientation into, uh, and I, forgive me for my lack of knowledge about the precise uh, laws in the United States. I know them here in Canada better. Uh, but when they were going to put sexual orientation into, you know, into the legal framework of the United States, there was this question of, okay, whether this thing of sexual orientation really holds along with these other characteristics that are immutable. And, and the answer in the research, and Lisa Diamond recognizes this herself as a lesbian, and in fact, a pretty strong advocate for the LGBT community. She recognizes that one of these things is not like the other. Um, this is not something that's, that's immutable. So how mutable, how changeable is sexual attraction, for instance, or, you know, or identity or behavior? Well, it's exceptionally fluid. Um, so going back to the study by Rich Savin-Williams in 2007, this was one of the first studies I came across that really surprised me. Um, maybe the strength of the finding surprised me. I mean, obviously I knew what the scriptures say about these things. And so, um, but 
he discovered in his study, I should describe the study here. The study was a best in class sort of study. It was longitudinal. It, it had three waves, okay? And so a longitudinal study is one in which you follow a group through subsequent um, waves of being able to study how they progress along whatever your studied um, you know, characteristics are, or those, those studied um, queries. And so um, in this case, it was a population-based study, longitudinal, very large study, um, tapping into one of the larger databases that is available uh, in the States. And what he found as he took a look at these youths um, during adolescence, and then again, I think about three years later, and then again, uh, I think maybe another three years after that, I think it was a total of over six years. Um, what he found is that over 80% of those who were uh, same-sex sexually behaved in youth became exclusively heterosexually sexually behaved um, at the end of the study. Okay, so let me, let me repeat that because it's shocking. Again, remember that our world says that, you know, this sexual orientation thing is immutable. It doesn't change. That's what our world says. And what Rich Seven William found is that with these youths, within six years, those who are same-sex sexually behaved, we're not just talking about kissing, that they were exclusively heterosexual in their sexual practices within six years. We're not even talking within 20 years or 30 years, six years. So what we have in looking at something like sexual orientation or non-heterosexuality, if you want to put it that way, is something that is highly fluid, mutable, um, and uh, yeah, and this is, this is very clear in the studies that have taken place since then. Um, Lisa Diamond, as I mentioned, she is very clear about the fact that um, non-heterosexuality is not remotely immutable. In fact, she does one study in which she tries to measure day-to-day -day attractions and finds that those are variable too, and far more, far more for non-heterosexuals than for heterosexuals. Um, so again, there's lots of studies on this. Um, one researcher by the name of Katzwise, this is a, um, this is a quote, Sexual fluidity in attractions was reported for 64% of women and 52% of men, with 49% of women and 36% of men reporting subsequent sexual fluidity in sexual identity. So it's not even just that, okay, what we're talking about here is not just that, you know, a gay man, somebody, you know, who says they have same-sex attraction and, and identifies that way, you know, sees a beautiful woman and, and goes, oh, yeah, I, yeah, she's beautiful. I'm, I'm kind of attracted to her. We're talking about something far more significant than that. We're talking about even to the degree that half of the women in Katzweiss' study who were same-sex uh, identified um, changed their identity. All right, so something exceptionally fluid. Um, now, before I leave this subject, I will mention that it is more fluid for some groups at some times than for others. So for youths, it's exceptionally fluid. For women, it is quite fluid. Uh, for older men, in, like adult men, it is not as fluid. 
Okay, so there's some variability in that. But non-heterosexuality is far, far more fluid than heterosexuality. As you might imagine, there are also some people that go the other way. There are people that you may even know people that, you know, were, were married and seemed to be heterosexual. And then some, you know, all of a sudden they're, they've left their marriage. Now they're, you know, they're claimed to be homosexual. So, you know, there's, uh, there's that experience as well. But non-heterosexuality is far more fluid than heterosexuality. One of the questions is very important. Um, oh, and let me make a comment about that biblically before I move on. So we're going to see that all these things match up with what we find in Scripture. So in Scripture, we see that, you know, in 1 Corinthians 6, that's, you know, some of you used to be this. And, but the gospel changed them. And what we find in Scripture is that, or what we find in the world is that there are changes even sometimes, you know, without the gospel. Um, but that, you know, if you were just relying on the Bible and somebody asked you, listen, is homosexuality something that's, you know, a, um, a settled characteristic, you would go, well, no. And if you look at the literature, if you understand it, you would go, no. It's something that, that changes and there is capable of, of change. All right. Moving on to uh, what is called the issue of etiology. In other words, where does homosexuality come from? And I made some remarks about this in, um, in answering some questions at the end of the lecture before last. Uh, but I want to go into some further detail on that and um, on etiology. Now, historically, there's always been a question of whether homosexuality is, um, comes from sort of nature or nurture, nature or nurture. Um, is it something that is related to pre-birth factors such that, you know, are people born this way or does it relate to uh, things that arise in the course of someone's life? Um, now, the Christian response to the gay movement, you know, if we go back far enough ago, I don't know, roughly maybe 30 years ago, um, the gay movement and their apologists would often say things like, we were born this way. Um, immutable, settled characteristic that we were, we were born with. The church's response at that time was often, no, it's a choice. Right? It's, it's, you weren't born that way. Something, something must have happened to you. And what we see both in scripture and in the peer-reviewed literature is that those two worlds are not neatly dichotomized. That as comprehensive beings that in fact, nature affects nurture and vice versa. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And so um, there has needed to be some some give on actually both sides of this, even though just right at the outset, if it wasn't already clear from my last lecture, at the, at the outset, your behavior, of course, is always a choice. And by behavior, I don't just mean sexual behavior. I mean even the thoughts of your mind um, and, and what you're desiring in your heart, how you're responding to any kind of temptation. Okay, So I'll just say that at the outset. Um, but let's get into this etiology uh, 
part. So first of all, the question that I want to deal with is, are there pre-birth factors that contribute to same-sex attraction? That's the question. Are there pre-birth factors that contribute to same-sex attraction? And um, the answer is yes, at a certain level. Um, if you go back far enough in time, I get, how many years would you have to go back? Maybe 15 years ago, it was posited, some of you may have seen this in the, you know, in the mainstream media, uh, that there was, you know, that there was maybe a gay gene out there. And that has since been shown to be erroneous. There is no gay gene. But also our understanding um, of, of the genome and the expression of the genome has greatly advanced in the last uh, 15 years, such that we now know that there are very few characteristics that, um, uh, what's the word that, 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 uh, that geneticists use on this? I'm gonna forget the word, but essentially that are re re related to, to a single part of the genome. Um, rather, most of our characteristics are expressions that come out of multiple genomes working together, okay? Um, so we can put to rest, it's very clear there is no gay genome, but the question is, is there any genetic contribution to, um, to same-sex attraction? And the answer is yes, although it operates at a relatively low level. Um, so Michael Bailey, one of the leading researchers um, on these subjects, he says this quote from 2016, um, based on the evidence from twin studies, we believe that we can already provide a qualified answer to the question, is sexual orientation genetic? That answer is probably somewhat genetic, but not mostly so. Okay, so that's, um, that's Michael Bailey. He's got a, uh, he's got a pretty good track record of not being biased. Uh, although um, I think that actually he, he might be overstating that even a little bit when he, when he says that. Um, <clears throat> Lisa Diamond in 2016 uh, in a study uh, or kind of a review of the literature called Immutability, uh, which actually might be a helpful if you're ever looking in a, at a database that you research at a university and th this would actually be a useful uh, study to have on hand. Um, but she says this, to provide a basis of comparison, it is helpful to note that higher estimates of heritability have been found for a range of characteristics that are not widely considered immutable, such as being divorced, smoking, having low back pain, and feeling body dissatisfaction. So what is she saying? Well, here is a, a lesbian advocate saying that divorce is more heritable than homosexuality, okay? And, and she's, she's a queer advocate, but she's, she has the integrity to, to say what she's discovering in the literature. Um, so there is a genetic component as, as dozens, probably hundreds of characteristics that you would never even expect to be, to have a genetic component to it, are also 
you know, have a genetic contribution. Um, this shouldn't surprise us. We, God created families to be important. Genetics are how certain characteristics are passed down. Uh, and, but this can also go wrong. And this, um, the expression of our genome is a new area of study called epigenetics. Epigenetics. And epigenetics um, is about how your behaviors change the expression of your genome. So not the genome itself, but how it is expressed. And those changes can be passed down to your children. So again, this is one of those areas where if you would have told somebody this 30 years ago, they would have thought you are nuts. You're, like, this is science fiction. Okay? But we now know this to be true, that your behavior affects your offspring, not via just nurture, but also it changes your genome. You pass that down, and that gets passed down too, to, you know, they can trace this about to the third generation, uh, which is interesting because the scriptures say that, um, that God sometimes visits the, the sins of the, of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Um, it seems to me, this is a little bit speculative, but it seems to me that that is very much in line with what we see in epigenetics. Um, although if I'm reading the literature on epigenetics correctly, there are also positive changes to the genome. Not all, they're not all negative. Um, although it seems, seems to me that they tend to be negative. So that's, that's maybe an area of further research. But um, so... These are pre-birth factors. Another pre-birth factor, so I've mentioned genetics, I've mentioned epigenetics. Uh, another pre-birth factor is hormones. So home, hormones in utero. And um, one researcher that I uh, have had some connections with, uh, Ray Blanchard, he's done a lot of work on one very particular area of this uh, called the Fraternal Brother Order, uh, F-B-O-E. Fraternal Birth Order Effect. That's what it is, the Fraternal Birth Order Effect. And, um, and statistically, they can show, and it's actually a very replicated finding now, um, that the more older brothers that you are likely to have, the more likely you are to have same-sex attraction. Um, and so there's, there's something going on, um, hormones and, and in utero, that I, I, don't, I can't fully explain, but it's a well-replicated finding. Um, and so there's, there's a hormonal aspect to this, um, to this contribution pre-birth. Now, the interesting thing here is that epigenetics kind of is kind of a wild card in all of this because it does have to do with behavior even though it's expressed pre-birth in somebody, right? Um, so again, nature versus nurture is not quite the same thing as pre-birth, post-birth. So there's some, there's some fascinating interweaving of some of these factors. Now, let's move to post-birth factors. Um, one of the very, uh, again, very replicated finding when it comes to both, both post-birth factors is the levels of what are called um, adverse childhood events, ACEs, adverse childhood events um, amongst uh, homosexuals and bisexuals. And these are highly elevated uh, amongst these groups. Um, they're, you know, one of the first areas of research that was done was on sexual abuse. And so, for instance, in one study, Friedman, 2011, um, 
he found that females, uh, so homosexual females, were twice as likely to be uh, abused sexually in childhood. But when it came to males, they're they five times as likely. Five times as likely. Uh, you know, about 5% uh, versus 20, 21% roughly. Um, but since then, they've done work on, I mean, they, it's kind of funny to say, but the research, the, the literature in general has done work on a wider variety of adverse childhood experiences. And what they have found is that it's not just sexual abuse, it's emotional abuse, it's physical abuse, it's exposure to domestic violence, it's parental divorce, it's incarcerated household members, it's household mental illness that, um, that also are highly elevated amongst um, homosexuals and bisexuals relative to their heterosexual counterparts. Um, now this leads those who are brave enough in the literature to <coughs> to start to ask questions to go, well, okay, is some of this then causing homosexuality? Um, there are a couple who would venture to say that, although that is considered, uh, there's not a lot of um, journals that would publish that <laughs> if you concluded that that was a significant part of um, the ideology of uh, same-sex attraction. Um, but interestingly, there has been a couple back and forths that Michael Bailey has been involved in with someone. Um, and what Michael Bailey suggests, he realizes that all of this is the case. What he suggests is that there is a genetic um, confound to these things. So interestingly, again, here you've got nature-nurture coming into, coming into play. Um, that studies have found that not only is there a genetic contribution at a yeah, roughly low, you know, somewhat low level, to uh, same-sex attraction, but that it is, there's genetic, um, I forget the exact terminology that's used, but there's genetic uh, connectors to other things like, uh, let me see if I can get this right here, um, like smoking, cannabis use, bipolar disorder, disorder ADHD, ADHD and major depressive disorder. Uh, and these things are linked genetically with homosexuality. Uh, and so somebody like Bailey suggests, well, that could be explaining some of these other things. But I do believe, I, I absolutely do believe that uh, things like childhood sexual abuse uh, play, that, that kind of trauma does play a significant role in, um, in the experiences, uh, in the sexual development of, um, of homosexuals and bisexuals. It's time, eight o'clock. All right, let's, um, this leads into another aspect. So we've talked about uh, what is orientation. We've talked about um, uh, the, the fluidity. We've talked about etiology. We've talked, uh, and, and what I just mentioned about, um, about sort of the genetics there, but also linked to um, the adverse childhood events brings up um, the minority stress theory. The minority stress theory. This might be a, a theory you've never heard of, but you will recognize uh, kind of what it posits. Uh, and that is that because um, LGBT people are victimized in overt ways and subtle ways, that this results in a lot of negative behaviors 
uh, and that we find, or other risks that we find in LGBT people. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking these, these risks, um, but let me just very briefly mention that, um, that health outcomes are, are poorer for, for LGBT people. There's elevated mental illness amongst LGBT people. There is um, higher levels of um, alcoholism, drug abuse. Um, sexual behaviors are far more risky. Uh, there are all sorts of correlates that are negative to homosexuality. Now, of course, our world knows this. This isn't, you know, they might not like rehearsing this information, but they, they know this. It's very, it's very clear in the literature. But they have an answer. But it's an answer that's wrong. The answer is minority stress theory. That because our world is so negative in a variety of ways, like denying gay marriage, which of course now has been changed, uh, but even, even subtle things, even the way language is used, the fact that, you know, the romantic languages are... Uh, you know, they're patriarchal, they're, they're male in its, in its form. It's very subtle stressors, too, are sometimes said to be responsible for this. Because of that, then this is why you see all these, these risks within this population. Here's, here's the problem with that. Oh, let me start with the nugget of truth, okay, before I get to why that doesn't work. The nugget of truth is this, that in any population uh, where you have stressors, that those stresses will be responsible for, for some you know, negative effects. So whether it's people that, um, so taking a look at the literature on youth, for instance. So autistic youth, obese youth, um, uh, autistic youth, they will, they'll exhibit the same pattern to some degree, right? If you're, if you're bullied or if, you, if you're subject to stressors because you feel like you're ostracized in some way, you're different in some way, this will have some negative effect, okay? So there's a nugget of truth to this. But the problem is that this is really the only theory that the world is, is working with when it comes to explaining these risks. So here's a couple of reasons why that mi minority stress theory doesn't work. First of all, because some of these uh, adverse childhood events that we talked about, they make no sense from, from this minority stress theory. You might be able to explain childhood sexual abuse from a minority stress theory that a, you know, an angry father that doesn't like the fact that his son appears to be more effeminate than his other sons, you know, he lashes out, well, let's say physical abuse, lashes out in some way. Yeah, that, that does happen at times, okay, in a sinful world. Um, nevertheless, having a household, uh, an incarcerated household member or having a household member with mental illness, that can't be explained in terms of, uh, of this minority stress theory. There's, there's nothing about that proto-homosexual individual as a child that would explain why his father's in, in, the, in jail. That makes no sense. Uh, or why his mother has mental illness. So it doesn't, it doesn't explain what we see in the literature from an adverse childhood event perspective. But also, um, and maybe a little bit more obviously, in no place, this is a generalization, but I'll defend it. Uh, I'll defend it from the literature. In no place where there is a significant reduction in these stressors is there a similar reduction in these risks. Okay, so in places like uh, like Western Europe, where they they actually started, we've probably caught up by now, maybe even surpassed them. 
but they started normalizing uh, homosexuality before we did. Uh, gay marriage, all these different things. They're, they're, um, these, these, all these risks, they haven't changed. They're the same. Uh, they haven't changed relative to, to, to heterosexuals. Uh, the needle really hasn't been moved, even though everything that the gay movement you know, said, hey, listen, do this, and it's going to help our population. Do this, and it's going to help our population. None of it's worked. Right, so how long are you, are you going to hold on to a theory that, in practice, as you work it out, it, 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 doesn't, come, it doesn't work. It doesn't come true. So, um, again, this, this connects, with, was connects with Scripture because we know that, um, that really some of what's going on, some of those stressors, not all of them, some of them may be relative to, uh, or some of those risks, I should say, some of them may be relative to traumas, incurred in people's lives, but some of them uh, are relative to what the Bible calls shame. Um, and our, the, the, the peer-reviewed literature has a name for this. They call it internalized homophobia. Internalized homophobia. Um, but the scriptures, the scriptures just say, listen, th this, is, this is shame because you're engaging in culture that you are not designed by God to engage in. And it's going to have its effects internally, and it's going to be eventually externalized. And uh, what, is, what is necessary is, is a turn to God's creational design, repentance from sin, and, uh, and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. Uh, this, what we see in the peer review literature ought to, it's, a, it's apologetically useful, but it also ought to cause us in sort of a strange reverse way to glorify God, that his, his boundaries are good. And when we deviate in society, uh, as well as at the individual level, from God's good design, that there are effects that are not fixed um, by just, you know, throwing, you know, secular therapy at it or trying your, your new theory um, what is needed is, is what is found in Scripture. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.